I have seen what a heart transplant does to a person. It is as if they have been reborn and glow again with earnest and abundant love. As part of our training to become UU ministers, we're required to train and serve as a chaplain, usually in a hospital. I did this two summers ago at the University of Minnesota Medical Center and was assigned to the cardiopulmonary unit. That meant that we were dealing with hearts and lungs, but mostly hearts. And I remember the first time I met someone who had received a new heart. It was as if the veil between heaven and earth had thinned and their transcendence became visible. They were teeming with life and love and beauty and awe. It was as if they had become more than themselves. Because in the moment of transplant, part of someone else became a part of them. Someone else's life and story changed their own, and the encounter created life where there had been death. The curious thing was that this renewal was only something I experienced with heart transplant patients. Lung transplants did not have this effect. Nothing did. Heart transplants were a thing unto themselves. I have never in my life met people who glowed so brightly as those people who had just received new hearts. In the reading today, it is the house of Israel receiving a heart of flesh. It is the spirit of life removing their hardness of heart and replacing it with her own spirit. She commands the prophet Ezekiel to say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. It is as if the biblical authors are saying, This heart transplant happens because we have forgotten what is sacred. Because we have lost our ability to feel. And the capacity to feel is necessary because it dictates how we treat people. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel. It is for the sake of all that is sacred and holy in this world. You have forgotten what is holy And it matters because of how you're treating the people outside your own tribe. You have failed to see the face of God in all the people you meet. Ezekiel continues, still speaking as commanded by God. I will cleanse you of your idols. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I think this image is powerful because it is so apt. We know what it means to have a heart of stone, to be unfeeling and unmovable and unkind. We also know that flesh is soft and living and capable of feeling. And in this passage, it is clear that the crux of the problem is the Israelites forgetting what truly matters, hardening to the sacredness inside of themselves and everyone else. Part of receiving a new heart is first recognizing our sickness and knowing what ails us. Heart transplants are not done arbitrarily. 
A new heart has to fit the space left in our chest, match our blood type. It must be capable of keeping us alive. When I was at Yale, I heard the Reverend Jim Wallace speak. He's a public theologian, a writer, an activist, and he served on President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based Partnerships. Wallace said something that shifted my perspective. He brought up the idea of our country's original sin, and I want to pause for a moment to unpack what that might mean for us. My definition is that sin is a divergence from what is good and kind and loving and moral and tender. So the phrase original sin is referring to the first divergence from the good and the moral, the beginning of the hardening of hearts. In his lecture, Wallace said that people like to talk about slavery as our original sin in this country, but he disagrees. And I got really skeptical when I first heard this, but then he went on to say this. Our original sin is the belief that some people are more human than others, that some people simply matter more and some people inherently matter less. And it was that divergence, that hardness of heart, that made the genocide of the native people of this land possible. Tomorrow is Indigenous Peoples Day. It also made the enslavement of African people possible. It made Jim Crow and police violence and sexual predators being appointed to high offices and children kept in cages at the border. And the effort to remove legal protection for trans people in Massachusetts, it made all of these things possible. The heart of our nation hardened a long time ago. The systems and structures that we live inside grew out of this hardness, this original sin, this first divergence from all that that is good and holy. The system of conditional worth is also what makes white supremacy and patriarchy so coercively powerful because this original sin teaches us that white people matter because of our whiteness. And men matter because of your maleness. And the list goes on. The lie of conditional worth is the false idol our country worships. And we uphold this system because we've been convinced that our worth depends on it. Whether it is is being white or male or straight or able-bodied or wealthy or cisgendered, the lie that says some people matter more than others is predicated on everyone agreeing that our worth is conditional, particularly the people at the top. I have noticed in my life, and I have been guilty of this myself, that as Unitarian Universalists, we feel this anxiety to prove how good we are when confronted with injustice. And I want to offer an antidote to that, because half of our spiritual lineage is universalism, and it is the half that kept me a Unitarian Universalist. Universalism teaches that no one's value is conditional, that no one is eternally damned, that no one is beyond the point of forgiveness, that we are all equally sacred. And when we ground ourselves in that belief, if we can feel our heart of flesh, the entire dynamic changes because there's nothing to prove. Only work to be done breaking and changing systems 
that dismiss the inherent and equal and interconnected value of particular groups of people. This is not a dismissal of difference. It is a recognition that we are all inherently sacred and this world treats some people like we matter less or not at all. And so when we engage in the work of justice making, we must do it centering the needs and voices of the people being harmed and not our own desire to be proven good. As Unitarian Universalists, we affirm the inherent worth and dignity of all people. It is our first principle. It is where we begin. But we must remember that affirm is a verb. It is a thing that we commit to doing. If we are more concerned about the reputation of a man accused of sexual assault than we are about the lifelong reality of a woman who has been assaulted, then we have things twisted. If we think it is worse to be called racist or asked to notice racism than it is to live inside a black or brown body in this country, then we have things twisted. And the ways that we do this eliminate our particular allegiance to the lie that some people matter more than others. But we are people of flesh. And in the last few weeks, we have seen profound courage. Women speaking truth to power. People rallying to care for each other. We're still here. After the Israelites received their hearts of flesh, the story continues with the Valley of Dry Bones. Imagine this. A valley filled with corpses that have long since lost all flesh and have begun turning to dust. It's a terrifying image, an image haunted by death. And then God says to the prophet, Mortal, can these bones live? And Ezekiel answers, Oh, Lord God, you know. Then God tells him to prophesy, to literally speak life back into the bones, filling them with breath, covering them with sinew and flesh. So the man prophesies as he has been commanded, and the bones start to rattle and come back to life. There is an unspeakable horror in this scene. It is gruesome. And it speaks to the challenge and terror of returning to faith, to love, to hope, to tenderness, when we find ourselves in that valley. Perhaps we are in such a valley now. But once we have a new heart, once we are no longer hardened by conditional worth, then we can and we must speak life into the valley of death. We become capable of recognizing the systemic violence against particular people and realize we must put a broken body, a broken system, back together so that life becomes possible for everyone. And that process begins with the horror of seeing things as they are and not losing hope. Seeing things as they are and engaging in a new vision it is our capacity to feel, to keep our faith, and to speak truth into the valley that breathes life into dry bones. 
When the house of Israel received that heart of flesh, it was not an individual experience. It was collective. The entire people, the entire community, the entire social system received a new heart. This is important. Because when I talk about the heart transplant that will save us, when I talk about replacing our original sin with a heart of flesh, I'm not just talking about individual sentiments. I am talking about the belief beating in the center of our collective social system. When I met those patients with new hearts, it was as if they had been reborn. And in a religious sense, the word rebirth denotes a lack of sin. It is the convergence, the return to what is good and moral and life-giving, a return to God, to the essence of life. But one of the realities of receiving a heart transplant is the possibility of rejection. It is, it is possible that a body won't accept a transplant. So people spend the rest of their lives working to keep their new hearts, paying attention as if their life depended on it because it does. It is not a one-time intervention. It is a new way of living. What if we lived this way? What if we spent our lives making sure our hearts never turned to stone? Making sure that the heart of our nation was cleansed of its original sin. Imagine that world. To live a life of faith as Unitarian Universalists is to live towards the principles that guide us. Our principles are neither a checklist nor a record of achievement. They're the horizon the North Star that help us find our way back into convergence with the good. They're the map home to ourselves, to each other, to our source and our connection. They keep our hearts flesh. And as universalists, we believe that it is always possible to be pulled back into union with the good. Universalism is the belief that salvation is always and everywhere possible. And salvation is about the lack of sin, the convergence with the good. So as universalists, we believe that we are never so far out of alignment that the pull of life and love loses its power in this world. Our legacy, our spiritual legacy, is one of profound hope. A hope that sees the suffering of the world, and still believes that love can heal all wounds. As Unitarian Universalists, we choose to live this faith in action, for love is not only a sentiment. It is a profound commitment to living a life that converges with the good, that speaks up and uses its power to undo systems and cultures of violence. Love is leaving no one behind, knowing when we need to be carried and when it is our turn to carry others. Love is a commitment to the truth that no one's value is conditional, not even our own. This is the transplant that saves us. This is our heart of flesh. Amen.